The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack Podcast. Today, I am with the legendary John Francis of Stout Street Capital, which is an early stage seed fund based out of Denver, Colorado. Uh, they are working out of their third fund right now. John, how are you doing? Great. I'm excited to be part of this podcast. Where's your, uh, where's your work wife? Yeah, <laughs> he, he he is taking meetings and he's yeah, he's got a lot of other things to do. I mean, he's he's the networking partner for us, and I'm the and, you know the diligence guy. <laughs> I don't know, you're pretty charming for just a diligence guy. Yeah, I get by. You know, like we see it as a relationship game, and you, you do need a certain amount of charm to to get by. You know, indeed. Um, nobody people like to do business with people. They like, right? Period. So, absolutely, yeah. Nobody, nobody wants to work with a groucho or some idiot who thinks he's better than everybody else. Exactly, which is pretty common in venture cap. Yeah, it, it's filled by a bunch of schmucks, but you also, <laughs> <laughs> and that that's common when you have a lot of Ivy League guys who think they know more than everybody else, and that's fairly common. I literally was just talking to one of my investors who sold her software company for a substantial amount of money. And she was telling me that like, even on the banking side, like the venture banking side, you know, they were like, uh, going at her and saying, well, you seem very coachable. We've got these operating, you know, partners that can help you. And there's like this just kind of like, um, hierarchy. That's implied from an investor to a founder, uh, where, you know, I think it's, I think that's a really kind of the wrong approach. Yeah. I feel like people who, who have that approach generally tend to work for bigger funds and they don't tend to kind of start anything new on their own. Uh, and most of the, most of the people who have that attitude have probably not worked. A single day in their life. <laughs> right. Most of the things are kind of handed to them. It, it, and for, for me, it's like I, I've started, like I have exposure into like being into a really top school, getting into it and the pressures of getting into it and also the competition. A lot of times you feel like, oh, you're the best person in the room and, and everyone else is stupid. All right, so are we are we referring to Tulane University? Nope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because because I know I know students at Tulane University. They uh, they party pretty hard. More than more than Tulane, Tulane is like where I thought I could take a little break. You know, like so I, I chose Tulane because I got a full tuition waiver, and I thought New Orleans would be a fun place to go to school. Um, before that, like I went to the National Institute of Science. Uh, in India, which is harder than getting into the IITs. And a lot of people think IITs is so hard to get in. And I tell people like IITs are probably easier to get in 
to a National Institute because when I got into the National Institute of Construction, they were accepting 250 people and you had 300,000 people apply. Wow. So, uh, and they rank you. They'll rank you like one to 250. What What was your rank? Uh, seven. <laughs> wow, that's pretty good. Seven out of 300,000. I had to. Like, there was a lot of motivation to do that because, you know, your uh, assignments, your dorm assignments are based on the rank. So if you're like one to 20, you get a single, you get one room where you have one person in that room. Like 20 to 50, you get three people in that same room. You're sharing three you're sharing the room with three people. Like, and if you're 50 or like 250, you get five people in that same room. So it's just insane. You, you're in that rat race, right? So you're you're always competing. You're always competing with your peers, and you're, you always want to be better than everybody else. But I, I see how that how that can translate. Was your father disappointed you weren't top five? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they cared as much. I didn't care that much at all. Like. For me, it was more incidental. I was just really passionate about what I was doing. And for me, it was easy. Like, I've never really thought about it like that. So it's how I've seen SATs or like all these common entrance exams or they're, they're trying to decide who's the king of the jungle by saying who can climb the tree the fastest and all the monkeys are the winners, right? So it's, <laughs> so you don't, you're not really, uh, you're not really controlling for intelligence. Uh, a lot of times you're controlling for obedience, right? With all these uh, aptitude tests and, and these common tests, all you're trying to do is to see if, if someone is obedient enough to listen to you and, and do the work. Yeah. So a lot of times you, you would see a lot of these people, they're, they're really hardworking, but intelligence-wise, I would feel like the population of those guys, I've seen a lot of really dumb Ivy Leaguers. So it's... <laughs> so yeah, the, the world's full of really smart, dumb people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's different things, right? So when you, and one way to really think about it is, let's say, who, who uh, organizes all these uh, SATs or common aptitude tests? It's, it's usually the government. Right, it's some federal government body. Let's say, imagine you have a Senate hearing tomorrow, and you ask this administrator, "How did you design the SAT?" They're going to say, "Hey, anyone who's done enough work, who studied all the all the material, they should be able to ace the SAT." Right? It's their answer won't be, "Hey, I want to find the top thousand, the most intelligent people uh, in the country." Like SAT doesn't do any of that or any of these common instances don't really uh, control for intelligence. They only control for obedience. So tell me, John, um, before we go into, you know, scholastic testing, um, <laughs> we can digress. We should have our own show together is tell me a little bit about uh, Stout Street Capital and your partnership with Clay and how it came about and, you know, becoming a founder in a, in a VC firm. Sure. Yeah. So we started South Street 2017. Um, and, and the journey for me began uh, right after Tulane. Uh, I got my MBA out of Tulane. Yeah. 
I have a fairly unconventional path. So I, I went into high-frequency trading right after school. And the reason I chose Tulane was they had an exceptional trading program. Uh, and I was trading oil and gas and energy. And while I was in school, uh, I was managing a small fund. And I had a few of my professors actually give me money uh, to run the fund. Um, and I did a bunch of consulting. So I, I was really one of those people who was like, extremely bored with the MBA program. And I thought like, hey, this must be so, this is, I know why people complain so much about an MBA program. <laughs> it's just so easy. Um, so I I probably consulted with around 30 to 40 companies, like people from sales to like sewage treatment plants, city of New Orleans, like everyone, right? So I, I consulted with a lot of people, a lot of businesses. And, and one of the things that allowed me like to kind of get into venture was the consulting practice that I built uh, while I was still a student. And I kind of continued that while I was doing the hedge fund as well, um, was seeing all these early stage companies uh, early on and trying to break into the market, trying to see how they can differentiate themselves. Uh, and that kind of gave me the, the lead into venture capital. So once I started the hedge fund, did the high frequency trading, sold my business to another hedge fund. Uh, for me, the next like logical step was to look at early stage startups, look at early stage companies and working with family offices allowed me to kind of start my own fund and get into early stage investing. And early stage investing for me, uh, how I looked at it was, I looked at it as such an opaque market where there's so much opportunity that I thought I could really make a big difference by bringing a highly method, like bringing method to the madness of investing in early stage investments, um, which I thought was a big opportunity. I mean, I, I feel like this sector definitely has the ability to to make people more humble. <laughs> and I feel like I've been a little more humble than when I started. When I started, I was like definitely a lot more cockier than <laughs> than now. It was like, oh yeah, all these all these people. How are they investing in early stage companies? And I can definitely do better than them. And you know, a lot of times when you start a business, it starts with ignorance, or like it's yeah. And, and that's pretty much how I started. And Clay, um, one of the family offices that I was working with uh, is based in Denver, uh, and Clay was working with the same family office. And we had a lot of overlap early on when we were looking at these companies, when we were looking at investments in early stage companies, especially in Denver. And it was more organic. Uh, I've never met Clay before. Uh, so it was more of a professional relationship that turned into like, hey, let's go start something uh, that's meaningful and something that's uniquely different. So... You know, you're two guys, relatively young guys, you know, you don't have software experience from a, um, well, I guess you, you had an algo trading platform that you, that you ran, but you know, from a conventional, like, you know, venture backed company perspective, you and Clay didn't come from that area. Um, you came from, you know, earlier finance. Clay came from the family office background of finance. How did you win the confidence of your earlier believers and your, your, your people that funded your first fund and how, how difficult was that to raise the cap? I would say it was very, very difficult, right? So being an outsider uh, and not being your, I know, now it's typical that founders are VCs, um, but VCs historically have been like the profile of investors that we are. We're fairly atypical. People who, are, who had their like 
experience in the finance industry uh, and are looking to kind of kind of make a name for themselves. Or VC is one of those places where uh, there's no established dogma of how to invest in something, right? So most of the guys who are in, well, most of the guys who kind of transition to VC from a finance background kind of look at it as the like the frontier where they could actually go do something different, go test their ideas. And that's how I looked at it. But the landscape, as you said, is is definitely dominated by uh, what you call operators uh, or, or founders who have had exits uh, or your traditional people who have no experience with fund management, portfolio construction, any of that, right? So any of the nuances of finance, none of that matters uh, in, in VC. And, and VC, for a large extent, is... Like the brand behind the fund is the person and, and the person could be like, hey, I started a company, I exited a company. And, and that story really resonates with people. Um, we did struggle a lot. I mean, we're definitely going against the grain in terms of the trends and in terms of competition. Uh, we were definitely competing with people who who could pretty much say like, hey, we've been founders, we've been in your shoes, we've, done, we've been there, done that. Um, and that story definitely resonates better in, in the more in the modern VC world uh, compared to like, hey, I'm I'm a fancy uh, <laughs> finance guy who knows how to build a portfolio and who can really invest in companies and who can understand the business as is and really appreciate what founders are doing. Um, that that story definitely is 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 a harder pitch for LPs. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And uh, for founders as well, right? I mean, they'd much rather have the guidance and support of somebody that they can relate to. Yeah, I, I think it's more of a perception issue. I, I, don't, I don't see VCs who are founders themselves being any more helpful than VCs who are not. Um, in a lot of terms, in a lot of times, I feel that being a founder limits your perception on how other businesses work. Because being a founder, you're seeing things through one lens. And a lot of things that colors your vision, uh, they're not objectively looking at opportunities. They're not looking at opportunities in a way that uh, will stimulate like differentiation right, in any way. So that's one of the big reasons that you see in venture these days is people say, oh, we, we love founders. We invest in founders. And Whenever I hear that, I, I feel like it's code for other Mastin people like me uh, or other Mastin people who think exactly like me. And, and that's one of the reasons that you see that big difference is like when people talk about diversity, that's one of the big reasons that there is that diversity gap in investments is people are just people are just looking at people and seeing where their values align, where their experiences align. Uh, and your perception is a function of your experiences, right? So whatever you experience and whatever problems that you experience, you can relate to those problems. And a lot of times the, the startup space is dominated by, uh, by problem solvers who can align their problems with the funders problems so a lot of the a lot of the solutions and a lot of things that you see 
aligns greatly with what investors consider as problems, right? So um, and that's one of the reasons why you don't see people going after, like, how do I solve poverty or how do I solve mass transportation? Like, no, no, like people who are funding them are not thinking about those problems. So a lot of times those ideas never get funded. Uh, so, you know, a lot of what you said resonated with me. Um, you know, I have fallen victim to this um, this persona, and I've written about it, and I think I want to continue writing about it because I think it's super important to talk about. Is the um, I notice when I'm around great founders and being around such greatness that there is an inadequacy I feel as an investor because I find companies, I find LPs, and I, you know, you know, it's money in, money out. I mean, it's not terribly complex. It's hard. But it's not complex, right? We're not dealing with things on, on an operational level like a founder is. And, you know, I think the desire to add value for uh, a guy like me uh, or push executives or, you know, onto them or push ideas onto them because of feelings of inadequacy is, is, is pretty prevalent within venture capital community. And like the whole idea of like, you know, is this person coachable? Like who says they want your coaching to begin with? Right. Like, you know, so I, uh, I, I see where operators can add a ton of value. You know, I mean, I think it all is dependent upon, upon the person. Um, but you know, I know from somebody who is not, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I've come from a traditional finance or from a traditional founder background. I kind of did probably half of each poorly, right? And then found it, you know, and then founded my own firm, you know, and then, you know, I've had a, you know, a longer career for my age in venture, but you know, I, I definitely feel, um, a, a disconnect personally, and like I need to constantly be aware of how I'm talking to founders, and is this my desire to be right and to be helpful, or is this actually constructive? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I, I feel like what you're describing. I feel like it's a function of time. I, I think it's more of like this last decade uh, we've seen that more operators and founders taking on VC roles that dual role, but historically it's not been like that. I mean. If you look at some of the legendary masters out there, right, Arthur Rock or like Don Valentine, they were not founders. They were <laughs> they were like finance people. Just like it's like who you are right now, right? So you, the most important thing that I feel like it is not being a founder or not being anything. I mean, you could be completely unempathetic, even if you're a founder. Like the most important thing for a VC is empathy like if you can empathize with the problem you can empathize with the founder and what he's building and where he's going i feel like you can you can be a great investor it doesn't matter if you if you are a founder if you uh, built a business with uh, a certain methodology or uh, a certain playbook a lot of things the founders that that are going out and raising capital, they are pretty much playing this really old playbooks. The playbooks are obsolete. They're obsolete like in in a day, right? If you have a playbook that works today, today, tomorrow it doesn't work because someone else can copy the exact same playbook. Right? So it's playbooks don't make founders valuable. Like what makes founders 
valuable from a VC perspective is can they empathize with the founder? Can they really uh, feel what they're feeling? And I feel like you, you can empathize. You've been in, on both sides of the table. And that's the most important thing that matters. Like, that's what I feel matters. And I feel like as long as I can empathize with founders, I can empathize with the problems they're solving. Uh, I feel like we're in a great position to be creative masters. Yeah, no, I think so. I think that's right. At least I hope so. And, uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I can completely, um, concur with, with all those statements. So sitting on boards is something that you do, you know, as an investor at Stout Street. So how do you think about kind of your investment strategy and, um, and, you know, your portfolio construction, lead, follow on, all that stuff? Yeah, we do. We do sit on boards. Um, most of the time, uh, when we're leading and, and for us, how we look at leading is, we are more than happy to just co-invest with other investors. Uh, we are a fairly small check, right? So we write $200,000 to $500,000 checks, and hopefully it funds we can write a bigger check, right? So we're writing fairly small checks. And, and, and the beauty of writing small checks is we can kind of squeak into any deal, right? We could be the last check-in. Um, we could be the easiest yes on a round. So a lot of things that really resonates really, really well with our co-investors and, and other lead investors where we come in and we're able to make a decision in less than a week or a couple of days. Um, and for us, speed gives us a lot of being nimble and the speed with which we make these decisions gives us a lot of power in, in a way in, in these relationships and also allows us to get into deals pretty quickly and get into really high quality deals with high quality lead investors. Uh, where we actually lead um, is usually when the startups are struggling to find a lead. Where we're probably the lead of lost resort for a lot of founders where we come in and we're like, hey, this company should not have a problem. This matter is exceptional. And we're looking at it from a lens that no one else is looking at. And we feel like we have the conviction to say that these guys deserve to have a VC-led round, right? So a lot of times when we are leading, we are leading because no one else is leading. And and when no one else is leading, that that's where I feel like where we could be most valuable for founders is if you do have an idea that, that we believe is the next billion-dollar idea or the idea that can really make it, we will back you, right? So that's a strong statement when we, when we go to founders is... We we we, do, we just don't say hey we believe in you, but we also back it up by writing or getting a term sheet. And when we do that, usually most of the companies that we are leading, we have a lot of conviction, and we do have we put ourselves in a position where we can actually truly help these companies. So we are not taking board seats to put our associates on the board. Uh, we are taking board seats where we as partners are on the board, and, and we're really, really adding value. Like we're constantly thinking about what's the overlap? How can they cross-sell with our other portfolio companies? What are the other strategic partners that we can bring on board? How can we connect them with other corporate entities? How can we connect them with potential um, partners where they can increase their ACV? 
right? So recently we talked to, um, we have two companies in our portfolio, Botco and Textile. Uh, so Botco is a conversational AI tool for healthcare, um, for healthcare uh, entities. And Textile works with contact centers and they provide text services, right? So they're, they're fairly on the, where they're fairly, I would say, um, on the commoditized side of text where they're not providing intelligent conversations or intelligent text. So when we brought these both, both these CEOs together and we said, hey, both of you guys have like an amazing product. You already have a lead into all these customers. Why don't we bring the, bring both of you together where you're using both your capabilities, right? And on the tech side, right now, there's no intelligent tech solution that can automatically respond to text queries from everyone from everyone from your uh, local health centers to your emergency centers. There's no way for you to actually uh, respond to those texts. And Baco actually does, does that fairly easily, right? So by bringing those two people together, two startups together, we were able to grow their ACV from like 10,000 to 100,000, right? So by by a factor of 10, we were able to like grow those businesses by just thinking outside the box, thinking like how synergistically we can bring these people together, how we can really add value. So we're not just, we're not just sitting on the board to be a passive uh, board member who would approve on resolutions and just sit there and listen to what CEOs are saying. We we really want to be part of the team, where we are actually part of growing the team and also being a value add to the team. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Being able to see past the minutia of the day to day and see the bigger picture because you're not in it uh, is incredibly insightful. Being able to, um, in a caring way, challenge ways of thinking with some other experiences you might have had, right? That could, you know, be, you know, other data points. And, you know, ultimately, I want to create an environment of feeling safe for a founder. You know, I never want to be in a position where a founder does not want to call me, whether like they lose a bunch of customers or an employee quits or there's a lawsuit. Like I want to be the first call, not because they're scared, but because they want a safe place to go because they can't talk to their employees about it. You know, they can't talk to their, you know, you know, customers about it. Like I want to be the investor that they call so I can help them talk them off the ledge because ultimately, you know, there's most problems are solvable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you want to be their friend. Right. So, and, and a lot of times, one, one of the big issues for founders is, is mental health. I mean, it takes a toll on them. I mean, running a company, you're being, you are responsible for all your employees. So there's a lot of, lot of pressure, a lot of untold pressure that's, that's on founders, uh, outside of just financial performance. Right. So it's your duty as a board member to be available and to be, helpful where you can. I feel like, again, all, all of this leads back to, can you empathize? Can you really, uh, really understand the problems and really treat them as humans, right? So you said an interesting term um, earlier in the conversation, you said exceptional founders, and I've got an idea of what that looks like. But how do you identify an exceptional founder? I feel like exceptional founders is, is, is such a, 
I feel like overused term <laughs> in, in VC where people say, oh, we, we invest in exceptional founders. So in most of the time, for VCs, it's really hard to define that. 100%. It's really hard to define that. And it's one of the issues, one of the biggest problems is when people say they invest in exceptional founders, the natural question is like every time you say no, does that mean all these guys are not exceptional? Right? So it's, uh, there's that like dichotomy of that idea where if you, if you're on one side, you're, you're down or if you're on the other side, you're so down. <laughs> so in terms of exceptional founders, what we, how we look at it is for a lot of times it, we believe everybody's exceptional. <laughs> Everybody is exceptional, but there are some missing elements, right? So there, there are some elements where if we can provide value to fill those gaps and we have that fit, it's like the jigsaw puzzle, right? So if you, if you have the right parts missing or the right places that they're missing and you are the one that can fill those gaps, that's what makes a good team. And that's how we see ourselves as investors. Like when we are investing in a company, can we can we pretty much fill fill in the gaps in a lot of different ways? And if we can, that's where we usually invest. And in terms of except, like we usually don't use that as a as a way to invest in companies. That for us, we look at companies in a very quant driven way, and that's probably because of my quant background in high frequency trading is we look at early stage opportunities in, in a very methodical manner um, where we're looking at opportunities uh, where there's some traction where where it is tangible, where the traction is tangible and they have existing customers that are not just paying for pilots but actually paying for the product. The growth itself is is tangible. Right. And also the path for growth is sustainable. Like those are some of the things that we look for when you're investing in companies. And in terms of the founders itself, we feel a lot of times that's pro- part of the equation, but not the only, only part of the equation, like some VCs think. Yeah. So, um, yeah, because I mean, too early is too early, regardless of how exceptional the founder is, right? I mean, there's there's clear risks on product and technology and product market fit that most VCs don't invest in pre-revenue companies, despite how good the founder is. So for us, like going back to the definition, I would say for us, an exceptional founder is somebody who has first-hand experience with the problem. And most of the time, the first-hand experience with that problem um, either affected them directly, either it's because they had ex- they have experience in the industry that they're trying to solve, um, and they can truly act on solving that problem. If they are in the position to actually truly solve that problem, that's what makes them exceptional. Like for us, uh, it's not about the sure. Like people say, oh yeah, it's temperament and all those things. Yes, obviously, like those are the things that I don't want to talk about. Those are like, you don't. Um, those are like, I feel like are a given, but things that are outside of like the temperament or how do you run your team or how, how you manage people? How do you talk to people? Do you have the right communication skills? Do you have charisma? <laughs> a lot of people look at those things as being in a parts of determining if someone is ex- exceptional, 
But for us, the, the key, the most important thing is the relation to the problem and how closely they're related to it. Sure. And so you talked about your quantitative approach. How do you how do you think about like the actual metrics? Like I know there's growth rate, there's retention, uh, there's gross margin. But how do you think about that when the company is just super early, right? And I mean, you invest in seed. So what is seed in your eyes? And you know, how, how can you measure that quantitatively? So for us, we, we invest in pre-seed and seed at this, at this point. Uh, and we focus mostly in the middle of the country. And what, what I mean by middle of the country is uh, regions outside of San Francisco, Boston, and New York. So except those three cities, we invest everywhere. Um, and there is a, a big difference between those ecosystems and outside of those ecosystems and how these uh, companies are measured and how these companies are valued. Um, so for us, when we're investing in companies, we're, we're looking at where do most companies exit? So for us, that's the starting point being a, being a finance person. We're always looking at what is the end game, right? So the end game is obviously selling the company or, or going IPO or in the most probable one, I mean, being, uh, being pragmatic about it right, right now, the most, the most obvious path to exit for almost every VC in this world is acquisition or mergers, right? So M&A is the most obvious uh, path to exit. And when we looked at pre-seed and C-stage companies, we looked at companies where they're actually exiting, right? If you look at companies that are exiting like 7 to 10 years from the time of formation, most of these companies are exiting at like 60 to 150 million range. So that's the, the fattest part of the tail. If you say, uh, if you look at a power curve, the fattest part of the curve where exits occur is 60 to 150. Uh, and the rest of the curve, like if you look at like your billion dollar outcomes or unicorns of the world, except the last two years where you had, let's say, 200 unicorns. Okay, that, was just, that was just stupid. We should just X that from the record. We could attribute it to all the SPACs and all the craziness in the public markets. But yeah, I mean, 200, let's say all these companies, if you, if you look at 2012, 2013 vintages, there were about 17 to 20,000 companies that were funded by VCs. So about 20,000, even if you say 200, that's a fraction of a percent, right? So it's 0.1% or 0.01% of companies actually get to a billion dollars, right? So out of the 17,000, 20,000 companies, you have about 200 companies. Historically, it's been closer to 20. So again, it's, it's, it's a very small fraction where you have really big winners. So we usually look at what's the fast part of the tail. Uh, the fast part of the tail is 60 to 150 million. And if our target exit has to do a 10x, right? We're looking at entry points anywhere between six to ten million. So for for us, the entry points are determined by where most companies exit, and and that's how we kind of backtrack, and that's why we are like seed and pre-seed and seed stage investors rather than seed and B investors. Um, and, and one of the key metrics that we saw was when companies are getting funded in the pre-seed and seed stage, the amount that they raise matters a lot. So a company that raises at least a million dollars 
uh, has a 50% like increases its chance of success by two times. So, and we looked at this data for the last 40 years and where we saw companies that have raised at least a million dollars, they, their chances of success goes up like two to three times, right? Uh, and also companies that are post revenue, their chances of success goes up by four and a half times. So companies that are, even if they are early stage, if they have some revenue, if they have some traction, that increases their chance of success, right? So when we're building this rubric, we're looking at all these different factors that attribute to the success of the companies and that reduces our risk. So we're mitigating risk every single time. We're saying, hey, the company has to satisfy these metrics. The reason why we are doing that is because it tangibly reduces the risk of the risk of the portfolio and increases the chances of success. So, and that's how we look at it. So for us, when we look at market sizing and TAM and all of that, I feel like that is for us, we, we invest in sub billion dollar ideas because how we look at it is the market is not the only thing that you look at. It, the market is a function of competition. So if you're in a $100 billion market and you have 100 people you're competing with, uh, your TAM is not $100 billion. It's just a fraction of it, right? But a lot of big funds don't look at it that way. They look at it as like, oh, man, it takes all <laughs> and growth at all costs. So you could pretty much bump and dump uh, is, is one of the big things that people look at. We look at Markets very differently, where we look at sub $10 billion markets and we say, hey, if you are one of the two or one of the three people who are leading the space, we would bet big on you because you have a higher higher chance of capturing the market than competing in a market where there are like 20 or 30 other people that you're competing with in a larger market. Uh, and, and also how we look at it is we are not chasing blue oceans most of the time uh, we, we're chasing right oceans. We are, we are, uh, how we look at investments is the biggest opportunity for acquisitions are in the red ocean, uh, where, uh, companies are primarily improving efficiencies in the market, right? So efficiency improvements are tangible value creation. The tangible value creation usually leads to synergies. And those synergies is what leads to acquisition. And that's how we look at it, right? So which is very high level uh, in what we've seen is in the last 20 years, anything that adds value, anything that is accurate in nature would generally tend to be a good acquisition target for large public companies. And that's where we want to play. So it's being pretty strategic about where we invest. And when we talk about investment thesis, our investment thesis is we'll invest in anything that improves efficiency in an existing market, right? So in an existing market being the right ocean. Awesome. Awesome. And how do you think about follow-on? Our our thinking has evolved since we started, right? So um, like when we started, I, I feel like fund one and fund two, um, we did have this thesis of let's invest, let's follow on on our winners, let's follow on on companies that actually need money. Um, and, and on our second fund, it evolved to let's just invest on the winners. And and if a company is in trouble, we'll let it fail. So in, in fund three, we were able to model all the outcomes for fund one and fund two. We were also we we were able to back test that model with a larger sample size. And what we realized is writing a large single check up front 
for our style of investing, where we are primarily co-masters and not lead investors, is a lot more advantageous than just writing multiple follow-on checks, uh, especially for being a pre-seed and seed investor. Uh, the dilution effects of it wouldn't really matter if the company does succeed. It does matter if a company goes to a 1x, uh, where liquidation preferences do matter. Uh, and most of the time, these follow-on opportunities are just moving you up on the preference ladder rather than getting you an outsized return. Yeah, like we're, we are probably going to lose out on some of the 1Xs or 2Xs in the portfolio uh, by not following on. But writing a big early check is where we think we're going. Yeah, and ultimately, you're going to have a better uh, multiple on invested capital uh, because your cost basis is going to be lower. And by a function that even though you're writing bigger checks, you have more at-bats if you're not reserving a ton of follow-on. You have more diversification within your portfolio. Yeah, and modeling that, it's a lot more consistent. You can you can plan ahead. A lot of benefits of just writing a single check. Um, but when we do lead, I feel like we do need to support our companies. <laughs> like that's That's the... That's the issue, like being a lead investor. And that's one of the reasons why I feel like most investors kind of shy away from leading is there's this implied responsibility that comes with leading is you are the steward of the company and all your other co-investors are looking up to you to to be the signal, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's not a good signal if you are not participating in a round. <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're the lead. Yeah. If, you're, if you're a exactly. co-investor, you can probably get away with that. But, but right. if you are the lead and if you're not, if you're not, then you're in trouble. And so what about, you know, I, I, I consider myself to be a guy that works pretty hard, um, but it's pales in comparison to the work that you and Clay do. Tell me a little bit about these side things that Stout does besides deploy capital and, um, you know, raise capital from limited partners on the media side, on the conference side, on the incubation side. Yeah, absolutely. So right now, I feel like we do have a lot of things going on. Um, the fund being at the center of it, obviously. Um, we do run the unmet conferences in four states right now. Uh, and we work with the state entities in most of these states. Um, Arizona is obviously one of the biggest ones. Uh, we work with the ACA to host the unmet conferences. Usually we do this in the fall where we host about 40 to 50 companies. And the idea was primarily born out of the failures that we saw with the CEO summit model that most of the funds, you know, some of the funds still do it, but we thought that was a very, that, that was a failed model where even when you have a large portfolio, let's say right now we have 66 companies in our portfolio. Um, at any point of time, you have maybe five or six companies raising capital. And even if you have five to six companies in your portfolio raising capital, if you host a CEO summit, the companies that are doing really well wouldn't show up. <laughs> so those are the ones you want there to inspire the other ones. Yeah, yeah. Most of the the ones that are doing exceptionally well, they're not doing. They, they're not traveling to a conference that's hosted three months from right. So a lot of times that, that becomes extremely difficult for you to showcase your own portfolio companies to Series A, Series B investors who, who are our targets for our uh, our next round of funding. So one of the things that we did is we 
We started Unmet with the goal of featuring all our partner funds portfolio. So collectively, all the partner funds in us, we have about 3,000 companies in our portfolio. So Unmet was a place where we could actually funnel all our portfolio companies uh, to go showcase for A and B rounds. Um, so which we thought out of three to 4,000 companies, you would have at least 30 to 40 companies that are raising capital. And those are like really high quality companies that are raising capital. Uh, and when we can showcase 30 or 40 companies in any given conference, right now we, we have about 60 companies uh, in any given conference, we would be able to attract serious A and B investors to the conference because out of the 60, each investor would probably find three or four companies that are really interesting. And, and, and that's good enough for, for them to travel, right? And in-person conferences for us have, have been ex- extremely successful because for every every connection that we make on the on the investor side we are tracking about a hundred thousand dollars in investment so so let's say so far we have made about two thousand planted connections through unmet and that has led to about 250 million dollars in, in investments in unmet alumni companies which is massive right so for us how we look at unmet is and Unmet is open to anybody, right? Yes. It's not, it's not just Stout Street. Yes, it's not just for us. Uh, and we expanded that to the, the state entity so anyone can apply, anyone can be featured. Uh, it gives us a massive opportunity uh, when it comes to engaging founders at an earlier stage. It also provides a great platform for our portfolio companies and also founders that we engage with on a, on a on a daily basis, where most of most of the time we're saying no to portfolio, most of the times we're saying no to startup founders. It gives us an opportunity for us to be useful to these startup founders who are looking for capital. So even if it is not a fit for us, um, being a, such a narrow thesis, it does it does it does mean that we're seeing a lot of no's. So it gives us like this pressure release mode where we can offer value to founders who are not even part of our portfolio and also engage with partners and other funds in a meaningful way. And being a small fund, we don't have the budget to go travel everywhere uh, and meet meet managers and meet partners. So Unmet becomes a focal point for our own networking and it becomes a focal point for us to engage with our partners meaningfully and also bring a lot of value to them as well. Cool. What about your other stuff? So that's one. Um, we are also uh, helping out another nonprofit here uh, called the National Star- Stakeholders Governing Board. And, and they have what you call the Quip Institute. Um, it, so they're trying to bring uh, some level of, I say, decency <laughs> to the venture space uh, where they're offering a, a chartered certification very similar to the CFA or the C- CPA program, uh, where the candidates are bound by ethics and morals, which again is, is a hotly contested or like a hotly debated topic in venture. Um, so that's one thing that, that we are actively involved in where I'm part, uh, I'm part of the initial cohort where we're, where we are actually educating candidates from, uh, I say like 16 major universities, uh, in the U.S. Um, everyone from like Georgetown to UCLA uh, is part of that program. Uh, we meet every other Saturday. It's a nine month program 
where we kind of lead them into the uh, in the world of venture and provide them some context and and the ability to understand venture from a methodological way and also from an ethical standpoint. How do you treat how do you treat LPs? How do you treat founders? And that's something that that VCs don't really have a handbook for. And through this program, we are trying to do that at the grassroots level. So, what are the common unethical things that you see out in the market? Oh, there's. There's there's a lot, right? Right from investing in competing companies and sharing company sharing information between them. Uh, VCs are at the center of handling a lot of confidential information, right? So it's uh, whenever you're whenever you're dealing with uh, founders who are trusting you with information, and, and you have access to that information readily without a non disclosure agreement. Or they are believing that you're going to take care of them, right? Or you're, they're believing that you're not going to misuse that information. A lot of times we've seen uh, VCs misuse that <laughs> in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, we've also seen VCs invest in competing companies too, which I, I feel is a strong no-no. Um, a lot of people would be okay with that, but I, I feel it gives VCs like information that is completely unfair, right? So it also it, pro- it positions you in a bad in a bad situation, and also you hear a lot of situations where VCs are uh, <laughs> are exploiting uh, women founders as well. That's one of the key one of the things that that we're seeing a lot of reports. Exploiting, exploiting how? <laughs> it's like, like me too, or like? Oh yeah. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know it was that. I didn't know it was that dastardly. Oh come on! <laughs> Dude, I'm in Arizona. There's no VCs here, so yeah, like, there's like two or three of us. So yeah, there's there's a lot of it. I, I feel it, it, it does. I I would say the professional, the large funds, or funds that are professional. Are probably not in that category, but there are there are people because it is there is a power imbalance when it comes to funders and people who are seeking funding. And usually, when you do have that power dynamic, people are incentivized to <laughs> exploit those situations, right? And unless you have a fallback, there's no fallback right now. Like even if somebody does something bad, well, what are you going to do about it, right? So there's no ethical framework. Where there's no ethics council that will disbar you from investing in startups, there's no such thing. How do you enforce something like that? So we're trying to do something at, a, at the grassroots level where we can actually make it a norm where professionals are undergoing some sort of training, undergoing some sort of. Um, they have to be conscious about their own biases sometimes too, right? So that, that's where we're trying to trying to make a difference. Awesome. That's super awesome stuff. John, I'm going to ask you a couple canned questions. What is your favorite book? <laughs> the Alchemist. The Alchemist. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, what is the best piece of business advice you've ever gotten? I say, <laughs> always ask for legal advice before jumping into a business. <laughs> there jumping you go. into a business idea. I feel like cover your ass first. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then tell me about, uh, is there anybody uh, that you like to follow online, a technologist, an innovator, or a financier? Yeah, I've never been like this role model 
I've never really believed in role models, primarily because I've always been very cynical as a, as a person, and I always like feel everyone is flawed. But <laughs> that's probably why. So I uh, probably wouldn't be able to answer that one. <laughs> you don't even have a LinkedIn profile, so. I didn't. And uh, Clay said I was doing a huge disservice to the fund. And we're losing, we're losing interest because I'm not on LinkedIn or social. And that, that whole thing was because of the, like, the idea of adverse selection was one of the things that kept me away from being on social media, uh, is providing enough information about, again, podcasters probably going to do the same thing, is when you do provide a lot of information to founders or to people that you are investing in, um, they do tend to change their pitch. And for for me, I thought I didn't want that adverse selection. I didn't want uh, people to change their pitch. I just want them to say what they're saying uh, without me being a factor or a catalyst uh, that'll influence how they're pitching. So that was one of the reasons why I kind of stayed away from social, stayed away from expressing my opinions. But I guess in the new world of venture, you need to be out there and, and selling yourself. Yeah, well, I agree with Clay. It's absolutely insane that you don't have a LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Your logic is so stupid on that. You're so fucking smart, too. It's just <laughs> all that LinkedIn thing. I mean, all it says is like your jobs and where you went to school. Well, there's a lot that, yeah, but it's like, I don't want, like, if you're running out of time, I don't want to get into a long extended debate on it. But adverse selection is real, right? People change change their pitch based on who you are. The whole idea of tweaking your resume to uh, to the job description is is because of that, right? So it's like, how, do you really trust the resumes that are tweaked or do you trust resumes that are not tweaked? Yeah, you should definitely put like a different picture though, like a white guy or a woman. <laughs> put a woman as your picture. <laughs> Everybody, thank you for calling in to or listening to the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to technologists, entrepreneurs, operators about all things value creation and startups. Thank you, John, so much for coming in. We are hosting a podcast every week. It's dropping on all your favorite podcast channels. That's YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. Just Google my name, David Paul, or look for the Capital Stack. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.